Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Diodora, the brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg, currently worn by world number 32, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, and world number 21, Martina Trebizon. See them at Diodora.com. Today's guest grew up in Sydney, Australia, and served and volleyed his way to 26 majors, including Wimbledon in 67, 70, and 71, the Australian in 73 and 75, and the U.S. Open in 67 and 73. He was the number one player in the world in 1967 and a member of the legendary Aussie Davis Cup teams through the 60s and 70s and was Davis Cup captain from 1994 to 2000, the living legend with the signature handlebar mustache, the Hall of Famer, John Newcomb, is today's guest. And we're talking a little quiet because we're here in the, we're on the top floor in what they call the competition areas at the Australian Open. I mean, you can't really do that much better. Is this, is this recognizable to you? This tournament, from, from from where it started, the Australian Championships. No, it used to be played at Kuyong, um, which is a couple of miles away from here. And, and did you win it there? I did. I won it twice there. Now the gentleman you hear, former world number one in both singles and doubles, twenty-six uh, Grand Slam, twenty-six major wins carried the torch for the Australian Davis Cup team for a lot of years. One of the most famous people we've ever had on the show, one of the most famous people in the history of tennis, John Newcomb. Pleasure to have you. And we're Happy talk- to be here. Kuyong is essentially the equivalent of, you know, like the West Side Tennis Club. Exactly. Yeah. The private uh, tennis club and a lovely stadium and had a, a long history, the same as Forest Hills uh, had with uh, the championships and the Davis Cup matches. And now we're here, and this is like Candyland. This is like adult spring break out here. This is, you know, it's unbelievable the job they've they've done. And uh, and year by year, uh, Tennis Australia keep improving their facilities. And so they've actually set the benchmark of having indoor courts and that and really forced the other Grand Slams to start uh, covering their courts. Now, as you know, we do a five-set format. The first set's the off-the-court report. So you're just here. You just here, just circulating, watching tennis. I'm just down here with some friends, and um, and you know, watching the tennis and catching up with uh, mates, going out to dinner, and um, you know, enjoying the uh, the tennis. Do you utilize the final eight club? Not, not very much. You uh, don't. Um, do you do you have like a different royal box you sit in? No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I just. I don't mind staying out of the limelight. I, although I got to say, at Wimbledon, I, I do enjoy the invitations to the Royal Box. Let's move into the second set. This is the on the court report. So we try to talk about the business of tennis. What have your uh, impressions of the tournament been so far this week? I think it's uh, you know making a you know a great comeback from the, the COVID years, which uh, cost Tennis Australia a hell of a lot of money. You know, in 2020, the tournament was played. 2021. Did they play in 21? Yeah. They did with no yeah. with no fans. And then last and year it was half fans. Cost them uh, it kneecapped every it kneecapped yeah. the the association. Yeah, we had a at the start of that a surplus in the bank of eighty million dollars and, and that, that all went um, on making sure that the tournament was run no matter what. Yeah, they've done a great job and um, in keeping things going. What about the tennis? The tennis this tournament? Yeah, have you enjoyed it? 
I thought the matches have been great. What it's, you know, sad to see, uh, you know, Roger not here and, and to see Rafa go out early with a, you know, what looks like a pretty serious injury. Um, but the new breed of guys are coming through and I'm excited uh, watching them. And there's a couple of young guys I, I hadn't heard about uh, who, who are doing remarkably well. And so in the men's and women's, there's uh, some young players coming through I haven't heard of before from Czech Republic. So I'm interested to dig around and find out, you know, they must have some pretty good programs going over there at the moment. Is that interesting to you to see who's doing what in terms of high-performance training? Yeah, um, I, I've been involved with uh, junior tennis in Australia for many, many years. And when we um, when I quit the circuit and was living more back here, Tony Roach and I got uh, very involved in, in junior programs. and In high-performance development. I, I never called it that. I'd say I'd say taking uh, really good young players at 13, 14 years of age and uh, developing them into being able to maximise their full potential. Do you keep your eye on different organisations' player development, like the French have been doing very well and the Italians in particular and whatnot? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I'm not involved anymore with uh, the, the development programs that, you know, was for years and started the... Player Development Council here and chaired that for many years and then was captain of the Davis Cup team for seven years. So uh, in that role, I was, we were able to bring young players into the Davis Cup squad and to blood them in the culture that we were trying to create. We see that out here, Leighton and Tony are at every, every Australian's match. Exactly. Well, Tony Roach and I were running the Davis Cup program and, and we brought Leighton in as what we called the orange juice boy when he was 15 years of age. And, and I, I'd actually met uh, Leighton when he was... Uh, I'd watched him when he was uh, 10 years of age in Adelaide and sort of had had my eye on him since then. But at 14, he came over in a, uh, in a team from South Australia to my tennis ranch in Texas and... Um, he was only 14 then and he, he, he was over there with the, the team for three weeks playing in some tournaments and training and came up to me one day and said, could I do an interview with you? And uh, I said, sure. He had a school project. And uh, so I said, when do you want to do it? He said, I'm ready now. So we sat down and he pulled out a piece of paper. He had 25 questions already written down, very well organised. And we did a long interview. It was good fun. And then we brought him into the the squad and, um, you know, helping him become number one in the world and, and a Davis Cup champion. And he, he you know, became part of the culture that we were trying to recreate in Australia. How are you feeling about Australian tennis right now? Uh, yeah, not bad. Not as happy as I'd like to be. You know, all of a sudden in women's tennis, we, you know, Ash Barty retired. And so... Did you see that coming? Did you know that was going to happen? I I was surprised and not surprised. Ash is that type of person I th- where tennis to her was important, but it was ne- never going to be the be-all and end-all of her existence. There are other things in life you could see that she was, uh, you know, would be looking forward to and... And I think when she won Wimbledon, that was a lifelong goal. And there are other things she wanted to do, like now she's going to have a family. I think that was probably at, at the height of the decision. You know, I, I, 
having said all that, would not surprise me to see her, you know, come back in two years' time and give it a shake for another two or three years. Are you very frustrated with, um, you know, the Kokonakis's, the Kyrgios's, the Bernie Tomiches? I mean, is that a, a source of irritation for you? Well, I wouldn't say irritation. With Bernie, it, it was just sad. Things off the court were the way he was, um, you know, brought up, and that was never going to end nicely. Um, that and I, I found Bernie, Bernie uh, <clears throat> in his younger years was, you know, a nice young bloke, and I thought he had tremendous potential. And he just lost his way. Incredible um, talent. Yeah, yeah. Tanasi um, Kokonakis, uh, it's just disappointing to see uh, Tanasi uh, have so many, you know, injury problems and all that. And it's good to see him back again and uh, making his own uh, own way and own name now. And there's plenty of room for improvement there. You know, I think there's room for another 15% improvement if he keeps his head down. And um, the, the thing he's got to watch against is uh, keeping his self-belief up there because when you go through that many injuries, you tend to always look behind, over your shoulder what you know trainer's going to run in on you next. So at the moment, he's doing a really good job. And Nick? Well, Nick's Nick. I mean, you know, well... What can I say? That speaks for itself. China, he's got a big smile on his face. We can move on, though. So, um, someone asked me the other day what uh, on a radio show, they said, what, what advice would you give uh, to Nick Kyrgios? I just started laughing. I couldn't stop laughing. And then the guy interviewing me, he started laughing. And I, and I stopped and I said, well, you got my answer. Now, um, the Davis Cup, um, has been, is in tatters. Um, and that's got to be a very sore subject for you. And what can you tell us about Gerard PK Group leaving? Is that going to adjust things to make it the home and away ties that we that, that I know the Aussies in particular are missing desperately? Yeah, that was one of the saddest days of my life when uh, they sold the Davis Cup some pieces of silver. It could have been a way to reconstruct it where the ITF kept control. Um, <clears throat> I made an approach uh, with Charlie Passarell to the uh, uh, the ITF back in the 90s, the late 90s when I was Davis Cup captain about changing the whole format of the Davis Cup. Uh, it was with the ATP's blessing and the president of the ITF, Brian Tobin, was a good mate of mine and they listened to us with blank expressions. And I said later, I said, Tabe, what, what's the story? Why, why, why won't you entertain this? He said, well, we don't trust the ATP. I said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. The ATP were ready to create a two-week um, window. window to have a, a eight-man finals that you'd develop over two years to get to that. It was a terrific format, and they didn't do it. So, you know, I did meet with Dave Haggerty, the ITF president, a year ago, and he was explaining to Neil Fraser and myself at Wimbledon what, what they were doing, and we just looked at him like, it's not going to work. It's not going to work what you're doing. And, Why? Um, Why didn't well, it work? There's no, no home matches. I mean, the, the Davis Cup, it doesn't matter who's playing, you, you put... U.S. against France, you know, two great nations, and, and they play in Italy. You, 
you, you don't get that atmosphere. It's not you know, a hard time selling it out. You play Australia against anyone in Australia, you've got a sell-out crowd. And it, that was what Davis Cup was all about. The history of Davis Cup was sold out. Uh, competitions going for 100 years was started on the whole premise of uh, Great Britain coming over and challenging the United States. It was the cha- called the Challenge Round, and it was set out over three days, best of five set matches, two singles, second day doubles, and the reverse singles on day three. And that format was always to sell out crowds wherever you wherever you played. That whole was gone. So somehow they've got to get it back uh, and uh, save the, the Davis Cup. If they're going to keep going like they are, I, they should not be allowed to use the, the terminology Davis Cup. Call it whatever you want to call it, but that's not the Davis Cup. It's not what Dwight Davis created. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. John, where does your tennis begin? I was brought up in a suburb of Sydney uh, called Longyville. It was a a dead-end suburb because there was no through traffic. The the river, the middle-class neighbourhood. My dad was a dentist and... um, I used to hit on the street with other kids around the neighbourhood when I was six years of age. And when I was seven, we went on a family holiday and my parents, who played social tennis, uh, were playing and I said, oh, can I come and hit some? So I came out and hit and they couldn't believe how well I played. So I said, we're better getting some lessons. So I started having some lessons. And, um, and by the time I was 10, or when I was eight, I played in my first uh, Sunday morning men's comp. I was, I was only eight. And, you played in the round robin when uh, you were eight yeah, against I, all the adults. Against adults, and uh, we won that C-grade comp, the first one I played in. And then at 10 years of age, I started playing you know, in junior matches, and I won every junior championship uh, you know, all the way through. Now, did you battle with, um, you know, Tony and Rosewall and Lave? Did you guys all know each other right from when you were kids? <laughs> no, Ken's uh, Ken's uh, ten years older than me. Ken's so. got ten on you. Ten. Ken was uh, <clears throat> he and Lou Hode were playing Davis Cup. They were the young heroes, and I was ten years of age, listening on the radio okay, okay. and dreaming how I'd like to be doing that one day. Tony Tony Roach is a year younger than me. He comes from uh, Tarkata, three hundred miles south of Sydney. So we were in different age groups uh, uh, coming up. Who did you battle with? Owen Davidson was came from Melbourne, and he and I were probably the best two juniors at, at that time, and we, we were playing every state uh, final. Um, and then a, another guy that got pretty good, Bill Bowery, who won an Australian championship in 68. Um, he came from Sydney, and he was, he was along there. There, there with us. So when did you start to travel internationally? When did you start to, you know, be identified as a, a Davis Cupper? I mean, at that moment in time, Davis Cup was more important than anything else. Yeah. I uh, <clears throat> I was a year younger than everyone else in, in my uh, school. And so I, I, I graduated out of high school when I was 16 and a half. And that's at the end of the year was December. And uh, in February, the Tennis Australia announced their men's overseas team to go overseas and play for eight months. And, and they named me in that men's team. So I was 
for eight right. months. Yeah, so I was like, <laughs> we left in March, and I, I was uh, 16 and a half, and the other guys were uh, 21, 22. And, um, Is that the first time you saw Wimbledon? Yeah. And um, and did you go to did you, and did you ever play clay? Did you ever go to Roland Garros? Oh shit! Yeah. You, yeah, you. Oh, oh yeah, I love the clay. I you know I had pretty good success there. I won, um, I won Rome and won the won the Swiss Championships, won the German Championships, won the Bridge Clay Court, the French Open. Um, I I didn't play it that much when I was at my my peak. <clears throat> the last time I I made a serious attempt at it was nineteen sixty nine. I uh, lost in the in the quarters in five sets to Ocker. Uh, I beat Kodash in the round of 16. Um, That's a good win. Well, I'd beaten Jan uh, the week before in the Italian semis, and then beat and then beat uh, Rochi in the final. So I won the Italian that year. So I, you know, I had a pretty good record on clay. I didn't mind playing um, on clay, but uh, 70, 71, 72. Um, 74. I didn't play. Uh, I didn't play the French, and the main reason was we'd start. I'd got married young, and we'd started having a family, and it, it was, I didn't want to be away for that long. And it, it, although they travelled with me in '69, we only had one kid then. And as we got more kids, it was going to be too hard to travel with them. So I opted not to go to Europe, uh, leading into Wimbledon anymore, and just concentrate on on Wimbledon. Getting ready for the grass, and, and do I uh, feel sorry that I did that? Yeah, it would have been nice to give given the French a serious try, but I had that time with my kids, so I think that's probably more rewarding. Now you got to tell us what's the story behind the mustache. <laughs> I, I grew it on holidays in uh, 1971. 19, uh, uh, in January, we we're in Hawaii. And my wife liked it, so I kept it. And then clothing company in uh, America, I, early 70s, I signed up with them. We were looking for a logo. I went to New York and sat down. They had all these logos, and the Stash logo was one of them. Um, so we decided on that because we thought it looked pretty good. That was an iconic logo. Was it like a, like the eye with the mustache? Is that yeah, what it one, was? Yeah, one eye and, and, and the mustache. Uh, and what was, and the, the, what was the name of the company? Was it Newcomb? No, it was uh, interwoven. It was a company interwoven. Out, uh, yeah, and a company out of New York. And then we branched out from there. And, and in the end, I had seven clothing contracts around the world with different companies. And did you that, make a fortune? Uh, I made reasonably good money. I yeah. um, had a different contract in Canada and England and Italy and Australia. It was a great logo for Japan. our listeners. This was one of the best logos there ever was in tennis. Yeah, yeah. I could have, I could have really, um, you know, taken it further and further, uh, but when I decided to stop, um, you know, that, that meant a lot of travel and everything, so I thought, I think I've had enough of this. I think I'd rather keep my uh, keep my family intact and um, and I want to stay married to the same person, so if I keep travelling, that may not happen. The travel took you out of business in a way. Yeah, it was just a decision. It's just know, too much. Enough, en- enough's enough. Do you ever shave it ever since 71? Oh, 73, I was in uh, playing in Tehran and uh, it was the last night of the tournament there. I was in Roy Emerson's room where a bunch of us were drinking and Emo said, your moustache looks terrible. So I said, well, you got an electric razor here. So he gave me an electric razor and I, I shaved it off. And the next morning I woke up, I had the biggest rash 
I flew back the next day and I had to explain why I had this big rash. <laughs> so there was only that one time and another time at Christmas I shaved it off to uh, uh, see what my two sisters would say. They came to our place for Christmas and my younger sister was there talking to me and she didn't recognise me. She didn't know who you were. Well, she, you know. It took her a second. <laughs> that's pretty funny. And that's the only that's the only two times. Did you love being on the tour? Oh, I, I loved it. But then I, I knew it was time to to quit when I'd stopped enjoying the travel and the, and the hotel rooms and, and having to be away from home. I just said, that's it's time. When did you stop? Last time I played Wimbledon uh, singles uh, was 78, but I'd pretty much stopped before that. I just, I played singles there that, to, you know, just give it another shot. It was too hard doing the preparation beforehand. Your best moment on tour? <laughs> Which So many, right? It's a hard so, question. <laughs> so many of them. I mean, I, I, I always say that the uh, <clears throat> my second Wimbledon win in 1970, uh, beating Ken Rosewell in the final and, um, and, and you know, what I went through in that match and finish up, finish up winning 6-1 on the fifth. But I led two sets to one and 3-1 and he won the next five games and uh, I was getting really annoyed with the crowd because I was always a favourite there, but they were cheering so loud for Ken. I got upset and I was able to change my uh, negative attitude which was 100% negative to 100% positive on the change events and played probably the best fifth set of tennis in my life and won at 6-1. And to, to be able to beat Ken, who was one of my childhood heroes in the final of Wimbledon, because I played one of the other greats, Rod Laver, in the final the year before and lost to Rod in, in four sets. So to play those two in a Wimbledon final was a great honour. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, really, because I, I rate them as two of the, the, you know, the best six players of all time. Who are your six now that you mention it? Oh, well, they keep coming up, don't they? <laughs> I, before the current crop, I would have said uh, Borg, you have to, you know, you have to put up there. Sampras, uh, except there's a, a little bit of a debit side there on uh, at Roland Garros, uh, but on hard court and grass court. Um, you know, one of the best ever, and and then you, you know you got the three guys now, Nadal and and Djokovic and Federer, who have kept pushing one another to you know bigger and, and, and better heights. Has that been fun for you to watch? Yeah, yeah, really fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, and to watch the uh, the other greats, you know, coming up like Becker, and you had Becker and Edberg at the same time. They had some great battles. Uh, and then you know um, McEnroe and and Connors and uh, and then Lendl came along and he, you know he was he, even though John was uh, the best player McEnroe in the early part of the eighties Lendl was the player of the eighties. It just keeps going and going and never stops. Yeah, yeah. you know uh, the king is dead. Long live the king. Um, that's that's what happens in in tennis. I mean you're. There'll be a, a great, and you'll say what will happen. And that's why this tournament's so exciting because you know you've got the three great guys phasing out, and you've got these new crop of young players coming up who are fantastic. And who's going to be next? You toss a coin, don't you? I mean, Sitsipas is really one of the older guys in there now, and then there's there's 
other bunch bunch of guys, and probably in an, in a year, Sits Pass is going to find himself instead of being the hunter, he'll be the hunted. Uh, and you got guys like uh, Rune coming up, who's going to be very, very tough. Very tough to deal with. Very tough to deal with, and he's got no fear out there, which is, which is great to to watch. And 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 then uh, you know I watched uh, uh, Shelton play the other night, and that guy's a handful. Uh, I haven't seen him where he's had a lot of questions asked of him yet, but uh, just early at uh, this stage. He looks like he's really got the goods, but there's a long way to go yet. When you look back on your career, how how do you think you've been remembered? Oh, I think I think as someone who um, you know enjoyed playing the game, um, was <clears throat> I was always popular with the crowds. So I was very uh, popular in Italy and Japan, um, and you know, and all other places because people could see that I enjoyed playing and I I, I felt the crowd. You know, I, I felt like I was, they were with me and I was with them, whether they were against me or for me. Connected. I felt connected to them and um, was probably the only player playing Davis Cup in Italy. I was playing um, in 76, my last Davis Cup match ever. Uh, I was playing Adriano Panata, who was a, a god there. Of course. And they, they were going nuts for him and I won the first set and he won the second and the crowd wouldn't shut up for about a, a good 10 minutes. They were just chanting for him and I, I was waiting to serve and this is at the, you know, for Italico and, and when they finally stopped as the Italians do, it was like, okay, that's it, you know, we've had our fun, let the theatre continue and, um, and, and I'm standing there ready to serve and and there's complete silence. So I put my head down and threw my racket on the ground, threw the balls away, looked up at the crowd and said, hey, hey, Eo, Eo, I play well too. What about me? And it was a big risk. <laughs> it was a big risk. And I, I kid you not, without a word of a lie, I got a minute and a half. They started going, clapping and stamping their feet, new comp, new comp, new comp. And I'm standing there. Like that, and anyway, they they and then they just stopped and they're ready for it to continue. And I looked up, and Adriano's at the other end of the court. He was a good friend of mine. He had the shits with me. He was staring at me like he wanted to kill me. You pulled the you pulled the crowd to the well, to them. I had to you shut it down. I, I, I <laughs> won great. the battle, but I lost the war. <laughs> I lost the match. We lost the Davis Cup. But it was my last Davis Cup match. It was a great throw. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10-ball scramble. I had sport association. I just say it. You say what comes in your mind. You ready? Favorite tournament? Wimbledon. Your favorite city? Sydney. Best of five tennis? I love best of five tennis. I love best of five tennis. Does it hold up? It, it, I don't care whether it holds up or not. It's a true test. Your favorite player growing up? Ken Rosal. Your favorite player now? Is there anyone you love to watch play? Uh, well, was Roger. What about the women? Is there a woman that you like to watch play tennis? It was Ash Barty. Medical timeouts. A lot of these players seem to be coming off the courts more than more than ever. Absolute joke. Uh, when do you poach? When should a player poach? When should a club player uh, cross? In my book, not too much. Explain. You're giving away your line. It's it doubles today. Uh, I, I don't recognise it. It's the, the 
players are standing, you know, one foot away from the net. And they seem, the returners seem to have forgot the art of the lob. The best doubles player you ever played with? Tony Roach. The best doubles player you ever played against? Fred Stolle. That's a good, we haven't heard that name. That's a, that's a, he was tough to deal with, huh? Fred was a great returner and a, and a healthy serve. The ATP. Great, because I was one of the founders of the ATP, so obviously I love it. Uh, sometimes I think they've lost their way at the moment. But, uh, some things I don't agree with, with what where they're going. The ITF. Making some terrible decisions. Davis Cup was a, uh, a disgrace what they did there. The key to a good moustache. Make sure you, you, your wife uh, likes it. <laughs> that is good advice. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis and make a change or any changes you'd like to make without any aggravation, with just a swing of the racket, what would it be? Stop playing. Uh, stop players from pumping their fist uh, after every point at their players' box. Stop uh, the players' box standing up and pumping their fist at the player. Stop the uh, medical timeouts, uh, which are a joke, uh, and you know players going to the toilet for a toilet break at five four down, and when someone's serving for a set or a match, they they take a toilet break. I mean, we played four hour matches. We never went to the toilet. Please excuse the technical difficulty that didn't allow for me to say a proper farewell. Huge thank you to John Newcomb. It was an honor. Thank you to Deodora. See them at Deodora.com and be on the lookout as there will be more to come. Megan Fernandez edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.